Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. I really enjoy finding historical photos online of people's computer setup, say from the 70s or 80s when people had home computers and how they put them together or put them on their desks. I didn't actually have my computer on my desk in the 80s. Instead, when I did have my Commodore 64 or VIC-20 or 128, I would use it on the television set in my family's living room. It was the biggest TV in the house and for a long time it was the only color TV. So you would often find me laying in front of the TV, flat on my stomach, keyboard in front of me, typing in programs. And I remember I got a copy of Zork. And I'll talk a little bit more about how Zork is played later. But Zork is a text adventure, meaning you type in things and you read results. There's no action. There's no joystick. It's all text. Well, if you've played Zork, you probably know it is incredibly addicting. And for young me, it was super addicting never seen anything like this so deep and so interesting that I was obsessed. I would lay in front of that television and type away and I would have notebooks next to me as I tried to map out and leave hints for myself everywhere and my family couldn't comprehend what I was doing because it looked like I was just typing into the computer screen. For all they knew, I was typing everything that was on the screen and I was just obsessed with it. I remember one time my sister sitting on the couch behind me, trying to follow what was going on, and I would get really frustrated and start pounding on the keyboard, and she didn't understand and would just start laughing. Why was I so angry at this text on the screen? Well, if you've encountered a Gru, you probably know a little bit about that frustration. Laying on the floor of your living room. When you're watching a movie, it's okay. Laying on the floor of your living room, typing on a keyboard for 10 hours at a time, is really uncomfortable and it would leave imprints of the carpet in my skin when I would get up and I would try to go to bed and my limbs would hurt but then the very next day I would go back downstairs and do it again. Zork was that addicting. On today's show we're going to talk about that game Zork. We'll talk about its creation, a little bit about the people who created it, we'll talk about the story how to play Zork or how the game works. We'll talk a little bit about the platforms you could get it on, some of the versions of the game and the sequels that would come out, and we'll throw in some surprises here and there. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
Zork was one of the first popular interactive fiction computer games. It's a descendant of the Colossal Cave Adventure, which is a game I also mentioned in the Adventure show, because Adventure, the game for Atari, is an offshoot of the Colossal Cave Adventure as well. The first version of Zork was written between 1977 and 1979 on a DEC PDP-10 computer. It was written by Mark Blank, Bruce Daniels, Tim Anderson, and Dave Lebling. All four of those people at the time were part of MIT's dynamic modeling group. Now, those four people had gotten an early copy of the Colossal Cave Adventure, or Adventure, the original computer one, not the Atari version, and were fascinated with the concept and thought they could actually build on it and do it better. So they spent a lot of time working on this game and then decided to release it and let people play with it. But they also decided that they would change the name they decided to call it Dungeon. At that point, they released the game in January of 1978. And then later in 1978, they received a notice from a little company called Tactical Studies Rules, which is TSR, the creators of a little game called Dungeons & Dragons, who claimed that the word Dungeon infringed upon their trademark. So the name was subsequently changed to Zork. If you're curious where they got the name Zork from, it was a nonsense word that they used around the lab at the time. According to Tim Anderson, who wrote a history of Zork, he said Zork, by the way, was never really named. Zork was a nonsense word floating around. It was usually a verb, as in Zork the Fweep, and may have been derived from Zorch, which is another nonsense word. Back to the quote, we tended to name our programs with the word Zork until they were ready to be installed on the system. So incidentally, before the game Dungeon was finished, it was probably called Zork, and then when they were told they couldn't use Dungeon... They just stuck with Zork. Happy accident. Now I'll talk a little bit about the programmers of Zork. Mark Blank is a game developer and software engineer, like the rest of the people in this crew, probably best known for their work on Zork. He started programming games early, all the way back in high school, where he created a simulation of Major League Baseball called Sea Wobble which stood for Computerized Winner Automatic Baseball. When he got to MIT in the mid-70s, he encountered the Colossal Cave Adventure, which at the time was being played on mainframe computers at MIT. And he was frustrated by the computer's vocabulary and thought that it was too small, the way that it was parsed, and thought he could create a deeper game. He thought about it during his undergraduate years and started working on his own adventure game. Blank would graduate from medical school in 79, But Zork was more powerful than the medical calling at this point, and he and his friends would spend the next several years developing a specialized computer language that could be used to program text adventures like Zork on the new family of microcomputers. From what I can tell, Mark currently works as a software engineer at Google, working on Android apps. David Lubling, another co-creator, currently works at the British defense contractor BAE Systems. Bruce Daniels, while also known for being a Zork programmer, also happened to be the lead developer on the operating system for the Apple Lisa. His familiarity with the Apple would lead him to also program the Apple II port of Zork. And rounding out this esteemed group is Tim Anderson, who in the 80s wrote some really informative pieces about Zork and its history. And most of those things are available online for you to read. Dave Lebling, along with Mark Blank, and Albert Veza and Joel Barez would go on to found a company called Infocom, which was based out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. They would make many Zork titles and 
pretty much own the text adventure market. Eventually, they would be taken over by Activision, and slowly but surely, Infocom products would dry up and disappear. So before I tell you a little bit about the story of Zork and the plot, I'll talk a little bit about how you play text adventure games. It's pretty simple. You see text on the screen, and it'll describe where you are. And then you will use a verb-noun combination to do stuff and interact with the environment. So say you're in a room and there's a sword. You would say, take sword. And then the screen would say, you have taken the sword. Then you could say, type in something like inventory, and it would tell you everything you own. And then you could use those objects that are in your inventory to try to do other things. So say, a wizard attacks you. You could say, use sword. If the game is complicated enough and it can parse more sophisticated sentences, you could say, stab wizard with sword, something like that. Or, put sword in fire. Maybe that heats it up and then it'll say, the sword heats up and it is incredibly hot, and then you can use it on the wizard. You could also use shortcuts, say, if you're traveling and you need to go north, you would say, north, or go north, or just type N. Later on, you could go, say, northwest or southeast, you would say NW or SE. So that is how a text adventure game works. Today's show is brought to you by your friendly neighborhood men's clothing store. You don't have to dress up to play a text adventure game, but you might as well look good doing it. Now the plot of Zork starts off simple enough. It's actually a kind of famous description because it is so simple. In the original Zork, it would get more complicated as we got into later Zorks. But Zork started out with a very simple text on the screen. West of house. You are standing in an open field west of a white house with a boarded front door. There is a small mailbox here. That's it. From there, you must decide where to go, what to do, what to pick up, who to kill, what to carry. All those things will hopefully lead you to winning Zork. The game itself takes place in the Zork calendar year of 948 GUE. Now, as I said, you start near a small white house, and when you enter the house the story starts to unfold, and you find intriguing objects like the ancient brass lantern or the intricately engraved sword. If you look around long enough, you'll notice that beneath the rug in the room is a trap door, which leads down into the dungeon. Now, what appears to be a dungeon actually turns out to be one of several entrances to the vast subterranean great underground empire. There, the player will encounter dangerous grooves, giant cyclopses, and axe-wielding trolls. Your ultimate goal is to collect the 20 treasures of Zork and put them in the trophy case. Doing so requires solving a variety of puzzles, such as navigating a maze, 
These mazes and puzzles are so tough, which is why I needed to have pen and paper with me at all times while playing it, because without notes and without annotation, it is really, really difficult. If you can place all the treasures in the trophy case, you can earn 350 points and the rank of Master Adventurer. When you do so, an ancient map with further instructions appears magically in the trophy case. These instructions will provide access to the entrance to Zork 2. We'll return after these messages. Got a pounding headache? Try new Whamoprin. That's right, just one of these will stop that pounding headache. Uh, I don't feel a thing. Whamoprin, give it a whack. There's a new personal computer from Commodore. With a third more built-in memory than the Apple II, at half the cost. The Commodore 64. And now, back to the show. Zork might have gotten its start on the DEC PDP-10, but it would soon jump to many platforms, including the Amiga, the Amstrad CPC, the Apple II, the Apple Macintosh, the Atari 8-bit, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64 and 128, the Commodore Plus 4. It would be ported to DOS, the TRS-80, and the NEC PC-9801. Plus, lots of modern computers have figured out ways to play Zork, and I've even seen it emulated in browsers. When Zork was released, it was a major hit, especially for a text adventure game, which I think would be a hard sell nowadays. I have read that it went on to sell about 400,000 copies, and I can imagine if it wasn't for the fact that you could get the game pretty much for free by getting a copy of the game from a friend... One of the things that made buying an Infocom game special and why you might not necessarily want to just get it from a friend is that they were known for shipping feelies, which were props that helped to sell the story more with their games. In fact, on some of their later games, these feelies actually tied into the storyline of the game. So you couldn't even finish the game unless you had the feelie. And it wasn't easy to find a solution, say, going online to try to figure it out at the time. So it was a clever way of having copy protection, which I don't think would work necessarily nowadays, because if that was your only copy protection, you would just go online, find out what that bit of copy protection information was, and then it would be defeated. Zork would spawn two straight-up sequels, Zork 1, The Great Underground Empire, which came out in 1980, would be followed up by Zork 2, The Wizard of Froboz, in 1981, and in 1982, you would get Zork 3, The Dungeon Master. Staying in the Zork world, they would release the Enchanter trilogy, starting in 1983, followed in 1984 by Sorcerer, and 1985 by Spellbreaker. In 1987, Mini Zork 1, The Great Underground Empire, would get released. Also that year, you would have Beyond Zork, The Coconut of Quendor. In 1988, you would have Zork Zero, The Revenge of Megabaz. And in 1997, Zork, The Undiscovered Underground, would be released. 
That game was released by Activision for free to coincide with the release of Zork Grand Inquisitor. Now, there are other Zork games, and I just mentioned one of them, Grand Inquisitor. A lot of those games were released by Activision when Infocom and them got together. There were also ones released under the Zork Quest series. Those were like Zork Quest Assault on Egrith Castle, which was in 1988, and a lot of those were actually interactive computer comic books. So they had a graphical nature and weren't pure text games. So kind of outside the legacy of true Zork, but still interesting. later ones were full-on graphical adventure games, which would allow you to look at pre-rendered worlds in a 360-degree view. Kind of cool stuff, and interesting to see the world of Zork visualized. But if you played Zork for five or six years and played through the original text adventures, you kind of visually had the Zork world in your mind. So almost anything you're going to see is kind of going to be a letdown. And as a person who played it, that's exactly what happened to me. We'll return after these messages. There are those who worry that video game playing can become obsessive. At Commodore, while we think that's a little extreme, increasing your game scores may not always increase your IQ. So Commodore's games come in a different package, a full-fledged computer, the VIC-20, that allows your mind to expand into the thousands of things a computer can do, in addition to playing games. I'm here with an average American homemaker with her own Apple personal computer. Jill, do you use your Apple for household budgeting? And... Actually, I'm working in gold futures. Well, you could probably put a lot of recipes in there, huh? Mm -hmm. And you can do trend analyses, generate bar graphs. Are you really a homemaker? Of course. So, Apple is the appliance of the 80s for all those pesky household chores. I also own a small steel mill. And now, back to the show. You cannot kill Zork as long as there are keyboards, as long as there are places to type in, people will want to play the Zork series. There was a persistent browser-based... MMO released in April 1st, 2009, Legends of Zork. Then Zork 1, 2, and 3, and Mini Zork were reformatted and released on the Amazon Kindle. If you are a fan of classic games, you might want to check out the company Good Old Games, which re-releases gaming classics, and they released Zork 1, 2, and 3, Beyond Zork, and Zork Zero back in January of 2011. You can pick up great games at great deals there. sit down to start thinking about Zork for the show, I tried to think why was Zork so great? What about it enchanted me so much? And I think it was the lack of graphics that actually won me over or made me give myself to the game more fully. I had to imagine a world. It's sort of like radio. You imagine a world and it's deeply engrossing once you pull yourself into it. And the things you can picture in your imagination are usually much better 
or at least personally better to you than anything anybody else is going to throw up on that screen. Zork was a fun game. It hurt me to play it, and I continued to go back to it again and again. But I'd like to thank it because it taught me to be patient when I game and to actually sit down and take notes and try to figure stuff out. And also, and I think this might apply to a lot of other people who played Zork, it taught us how to type. It was very helpful in that regard because you could finger type or you'd be staring at the screen or looking at your notes and you actually learned where things were on your keyboard. So thank you, Zork, for teaching me a skill that I still use today. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist.com and twitter.com slash retroist. Thanks to Peachy for the music you hear in the podcast. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. If you happen to be an iTunes user and you have a couple of minutes, maybe you could stop by the iTunes directory and give the Retroist a review. It would be much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. This is a paid announcement. The Grand Inquisitor rules. This has been a retrospective production. Goodbye.